Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of Talkhouse Film, and you're listening to the Talkhouse Film Podcast. For over three decades, the Sundance Film Institute has helped foster cinematic talent not only for within the U.S., but also throughout the world with its filmmaker labs. When I got a call from Sundance about the opportunity to set up a conversation between two participants at the 2014 Screen Artists Lab, I jumped at the chance. Scott Z. Burns is one of the smartest and arguably most underrated screenwriters working today, a collaborator with Steven Soderbergh on the films Contagion, Side Effects, and a personal favorite, The Informant, and also a director in his own right. He has been a creative advisor at the labs for some time now, and this year helped Orla George with her project about the troubles in Northern Ireland, Stranger with a Camera, which she will also direct. Though this will be George's debut feature, she's not strictly new to this world. Her father is the Irish director Terry George, best known for such acclaimed films as Hotel Rwanda. Oh, and she also won an Oscar in 2012 for producing her father's short film, The Shore. In a quiet room up in the mountains in Utah, they spoke about their journeys to becoming filmmakers and much more, including a pretty great Bob Dylan story. It is now recording. All right. Um, Do you want to go first? I'm Orla George, and I'm at the Sundance uh, Screenwriters Lab. I'm Scott Burns, and I'm sitting next to Orla at the Sundance Screenwriting Lab. Um, I don't think we have to say the date. Do we have to say the date? It's sometime in late June (laughs) in North America and the Northern Hemisphere. And from what I understand, there was just maybe an earthquake in Alaska. So you can backdate it that way. Yeah. (laughs) Um, If we're all still here, it means there wasn't a giant tsunami. Um, so, seeing how we're at the lab, why don't you tell me how you found your way to the lab and why? I, um, this is my first screenplay, and uh, I just had a great note session with Scott, very illuminating, and um, I uh, had never written a screenplay before, and I uh, wanted to write one. I had a story I was thinking about, about um, a girl going back with her father to Northern Ireland, and he gets arrested um, for murder connected to an IRA charge, and I thought it would be an interesting way to look at um, the country's dealing uh, with truth and reconciliation. And um, it had the application for the Sundance Lab, you only have to send in five pages and a three-page treatment. And if you've never written a screenplay before, that's actually like a very nice way to get into it. And then when I got into the second round, they were like, okay, you have a month to send us the full script. And so it was just, um, they have a lovely way of making everything here into uh, pieces that seem digestible and doable. And so uh, after that, I got in um, to that next round and we had phone interviews and then they said, you know, you're gonna have to shoot something if you wanna go to the director's lab. And then I did that. So then we've ended up here at the second screenwriter's lab and it's just been wonderful. How did you get involved? Um, I think this is the sixth time I've been an advisor up here, fifth or maybe fifth time, fifth time. Um, I had written, the first screenplay I ever wrote um, ended up being a movie at HBO called oh. PU239 and Carrie Putnam um, was one of the executives on the movie and midway through the movie she, she abandoned me and quit. And she ended up, uh, <clears throat> I think now she's the, is she the president of the Sundance Lab? Yeah, yeah she's, she runs the place basically. Um, actually, Robert Redford, I think, still runs the place. But <laughs> other than Robert Redford, Carrie Putnam 
Um, and she invited me to come and be an advisor, and it was kind of alarming to me because I never went to film school and I'm completely untrained in this particular field. So I didn't know um, that this would be a great gig for me, but I found after the first year that I learned so much from the other advisors and just from you know, being in a room and hearing other people talk about writing and realizing that all of these challenges that I face alone in my room are being faced by, by other people. And, and it was great. And so, you know, if I'm helping people half as much as I'm being helped, then, um, and you are. then, I'm, then I'm getting away pretty, pretty, pretty easy here. How did that script come about? Because I love that film. I love Patty Constantine. Um, it was really weird. I was directing commercials and a friend of mine, this guy named Joe Blake, who did my casting for commercials, was also friends with an actor in LA named Peter Berg who decided he wanted to direct. And Peter would come in and talk to me about commercials <clears throat> and about lenses. And we would just talk about film. And he was directing a really dark movie at the time called Very Bad Things. Mm -hmm. And Pete and I became friends, and he invited me to work on <clears throat> his first TV show, not Friday Night Lights, which ended up being crazy successful, but a show we did called Wonderland that was set at the mental hospital at Bellevue in New York. And I'd never really written dialogue more than on a 30-second commercial, and Pete encouraged me to do that, and I became sort of smitten with the whole thing. And while I was in New York, I was walking around and I found this book of short stories called PU 239 by this sort of Russian Jewish American writer named Ken Kalfas. And I love the first short story. It sort of was about <clears throat> this guy who's caught in a nuclear accident um, after Glasnost in, in the former Soviet Union. And I loved it. And I optioned it and I went back in the day when you could wander around Hollywood and pitch a movie and someone would buy it. And, um, and a company called Working Title bought it and then they wouldn't make it and it took about eight years and I finally got it made. So yeah, a lot of the things that I've worked on seem to take a really long time. And were you writing other scripts in that time? Yeah, um, yeah, I, I just kept writing and and working and <clears throat> this sort of a thing that starts to happen where one thing begets another and you know the the script that I had written for PU 239 had sort of made its way around town and I was offered some other writing jobs and one of those ended up being with Steven Soderbergh and um, he took that script that I had written for a movie called The Informant to Matt Damon and Matt liked what I had written, so Matt asked me to write the Bourne Ultimatum. And so work sort of begot work. But for a long time, it just felt like I was going to write scripts and not write movies. So, um, you know, you have to sort of get to be in a peaceful place writing. Otherwise, this isn't a really great job, if, if, you know, because you're going to spend, and we were talking about this last night at the lab, that, you know, if, if you know, if you write two or three scripts a year, you know, you may write for five years before you ever get anything even close to being made. And a lot of people never get things made. 
So it's, um, you have to really love sitting alone and writing, otherwise it's not the right job. And when you, um, the informant, did that come out How of How have you made it so you're asking me all the questions? Uh, <laughs> well, you have a more interesting career up to date. We won't have much to talk about for me. But I'm really interested in the um, process with the informant because that's such an original script. And, and how did you go about deciding how you would tackle that story? Because it's obviously a true story. Did it come from the NPR piece, or is there, was there underlying material besides that? Um, I first heard about it on This American Life, which is Ira Glass's show on NPR. Okay. And then I found out there was a book that a Wall Street Journal writer had done, um, a guy named Kurt Eichenwald, oh. who ended up having sort of his own bizarre story. Um, but Kurt wrote an incredible book um, about Mark Whitaker uh, called The Informant. And when I heard the story on NPR, I was just blown away. It was the story about a guy who was an FBI informant who at the same time was embezzling and the FBI didn't know. But he uncovered a huge worldwide price-fixing scam in vitamins and in food sort of chemistry and food, the food industry. ADM is a giant company indicator, Illinois. And so um, he'd been wearing a wire, but at the same time he'd been committing all sorts of acts of embezzlement and tax evasion and fraud and got away with it for a really long time to the tune of at least $10 million. Um, and so I heard about it and told my agent I really want to write this movie. I think this is an amazing character. And someone already had optioned the book, so I went to these producers and they said, well, we always thought it could be maybe a TV movie, but we'll give you a month to go and try and get it set up. So I went and I pitched it, <clears throat> and I had known a woman named Jennifer Fox who was running Steven um, Soderbergh and George Clooney's company. And I pitched it to her and some other people. And <clears throat> she called me a couple days later and said, we're going to pass. And I said, I must have really fucked up the pitch, because I'm sure Stephen would love this. Yeah. Um, can I have another chance? And she said, well, we don't really give do-overs in Hollywood. You know, sorry. And I said, well, can you at least play the NPR piece for Stephen? Because you know, maybe I, I'd never met Stephen. Um, and in the interim, some other people had expressed interest um, who were kind of cool, like Anthony Mangella um, had a company at the time with Sidney Pollack, and Sidney Pollack really liked um, the story, and he had read this PU, PU-239 thing I had written, and Mel Gibson had read it and liked it, and this was before Mel Gibson <laughs> was who he is now. Um, anyway, the next day I got a phone call from Steven Soderbergh and I didn't believe it was him. I was, thought it was some friend messing with me. And um, he said, I want to do this with you. So we sat down and the story is so outrageous that Steven said, there's really <clears throat> no way we can do this as a straight sort of informer you know, movie. And the, and the insider had also just happened a couple of years before, and so the idea of a whistleblower movie had already happened. And so we decided that we should, you know, he said something that was really great that I should have said to you today, <laughs> which is you should always try and write any story the way that only you can. 
um, and that that should ultimately be your guide. Mm -hmm. And so Stephen said, you know, go and do what, what you think only you can do, find your own particular voice in the story. And for me, that meant climbing inside of Mark Whitaker's head. And I did some research on what people who were bipolar, you know, what, what their experiences of the world are. And I'd met this guy when I was doing research at Bellevue, because um, I spent a lot of time wandering around meeting patients at the mental hospital. I met a guy who was a very bipolar, who experienced this thought thing called tangentiality, where they'll start to tell you a story about the baseball game, but before they can tell you who won the baseball game, they have to tell you about the usher, and then they're telling you about the <laughs> peanuts, and then the change, but where the dollar bill that was you handed came from was actually from the Federal Reserve, and then they're talking about the Federal Reserve, and where that came from, and you know, Woodrow Wilson or whatever. <laughs> and <clears throat> so I decided that part of the reason Mark Whitaker made the decisions that he made was because he was experiencing that kind of thought process. Um, which can lead you into some pretty far off lands. So that was my idea, was that while we played these scenes, I wanted to show the inside of his brain. Yeah. Um, and Stephen was really excited because he had never seen that before. And I also was fascinated by a thing. When I went to college, I, I loved the idea of an unreliable narrator. And Herman Melville wrote this really cool book called The Confidence Man, which I think he wrote after Moby Dick. Um, and in it, the, the narrator just is constantly lying to the reader. Uh -huh. And I, I, I wanted to do that in a movie, because when we hear voiceovers in movies, we assume they're telling us the truth. Yeah. So anyway. I love that idea of tangentiality that you talked about, because it's just, we really feel for Mark in the in the piece. Yeah. You really feel for like we've all lied, we've all got sucked into things, and he just is so kind of pathetic and at the same time often winning. <laughs> yeah, no lying. I mean, lying has been a big part of a lot of the things that I've written. I think it's interesting because the act of writing and the act of fiction is a lot. You know, you're going to have to lie <laughs> um, to make it in this job. Um, and so making shit up is, is really important and identifying, you know, where in your life you can do that and where in your life you can't is sort of, I guess, what we now call ethics. Do you have rules about that when you approach a script? Because like we, we talked briefly earlier about Contagion and um, one thing I really love about all your films is they take a subject that in some other times has been, like if you look at Outbreak or something, Hollywoodized, and they actually find the drama in what is inherently dramatic about epidemiology or public health or, or even food um, chemicals, I really think that the respect you have for what's interesting in that world and how to dramatize it, do you go in with certain rules about how you're gonna approach that and what you will not fictionalize, or does each project dictate? I think each project ends up dictating. I always find that research is the most fun part. I mean, the research that you've done clearly mm -hmm. on the IRA and, and the conflict you know, in Northern Ireland is amazing to me. Mm -hmm. And what I always believe is if you get stuck as a writer, one of the best things to do is go back to the research. Um, even if you're writing a story about an apple, you know, if you go back and 
learn more about the histories of app. You know, you'll find something. And the great thing about Contagion was I met all of these epidemiologists and virologists and public health people who would take the time to explain science to me and then I would have to spend time talking to them about movies and how we could get that science to either be demonstrated in a nonverbal way and, and make it something that was visual. And Stephen and I, I think, have a similar interest in science as being um, this great font of stories. And I don't think that, you know, we've done an adequate job in Hollywood using science as sort of a basis for, you know, for where people get get their stories. You know, at, at the Sundance Festival, there's an award that they give out um, for like the most science-influenced movie every year. And one year I was on the jury and the movies that, you know, the movie that we ended up giving it to was this mumblecore movie, um, it's called Computer Chess. Oh, interesting. Isn't that the name of it? Yeah. Um, which was awesome. Um, although the other people on the panel with me were like it was some physics professor from MIT and some other people, and they really weren't quite up to the challenges of Mumblecore. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, did, what kind of research did you do when you were doing your script? Um, yeah, I, lo I love interviewing people because, especially under the guise of of being able to fictionalize uh, their stories, it was, I, I wasn't really prepared for what a release it would be for pe some of the people I spoke to, to have an opportunity to talk about their experiences more uh, in a country where there's no room for that. And so it was really profound actually to sort of, you know, sit down with somebody um, who has maybe not spoken in 10 years about what they did, certainly hasn't spoken to their children. And I, I was surprised at how many times I would end up in, in tears for them because uh, my interest is never in what they did, but in what they were wearing, what they were listening to, what did it feel like? Um, because I think that's usually my way into the story is, you know, it, it's hard for anyone to identify with like an IRA bomber, but if you're a kid in the 70s and British soldiers are coming down your street and like your sister got knocked down and lost her baby that she was pregnant with, it just, you know, the, it was interesting how a lot of people started out giving me their political story. This is how I feel. And most times it turned out that they did not feel that way until later in their life, that the initial kind of spring for why they got involved was almost always personal and in some cases really funny. Like, they were going to impress a girl, and the way to impress a girl was to throw a rock at this tank, and then they got arrested. Yeah. And then it sort of, the rest of their life became dictated by that. So um, I really enjoy the process of sitting down, and I think also Northern Ireland is like an oral culture, and I think that's also part of it. its problems, really, is because there's such a tendency to romanticize um, one's own actions that I think a lot of what happened in the Troubles becomes a storytelling issue where both sides' visions of reality are so compelling that it's very hard for them to believe anything outside of that. Yeah, it's funny, we were talking earlier, I think for most people in America, sometime after Bobby Sands, you know, Northern Ireland fell off the radar yeah. as you know an ongoing story. And so the thing that I thought that was so fascinating about your script is 
to go back and revisit that and revisit it through the daughter of someone who was there and see how, you know, how do people put that shit behind them and can you even put that behind you and how it plays, you know, plays out. I think that your script, when you're done with it, is going to have really great things to say about, about it. And I hope it doesn't take seven years to get made. Thanks. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. I mean, the nice thing about Northern Ireland actually working there is um, that because it's still a somewhat disputed territory, there are three different film boards that all <laughs> contribute mm. money. Mm. So you so you can apply for, for British Film Institute, Irish Film, uh, and also the Northern Ireland Screen. And so uh, in some ways it's interesting to be from a place that's, that's highly developing. Um, what you said before about people doing stuff for a girl, it's kind of interesting because I have this idea for a documentary. Um, when I was growing, I grew up in Minnesota, and if you grew up in Minnesota at any point in time, probably in the last you know, 50 years, um, you, you wanted to play guitar because there were some cool bands, and Bob Dylan was from Minnesota. And a friend of mine when I was growing up um, ended up marrying Bob Dylan's daughter. Wow. Um, and he was a musician himself. And, and we were all, all of us in our little group were amazed that our friend Peter has, you know, made it into this, you know, <laughs> this legendary family and that he was going to have access to Bob Dylan. And I said, can, can you ask Bob a question for me? And he said, I, I don't know, that's probably going to be a bad idea. And I was like, all right, well, and he said, well, tell me the question and if I can, like, work it into conversation. And I said, I just want to know if Greenwich Village, New York in 1963 or 1964, you know, if that period of time with, with Dylan and, and Dave Van Ronk and, you know, Ginsburg and, you know, all of those people and Kerouac, if that was really, was that really the, the ultimate moment for this version of history yeah. was that really did I miss it you know <laughs> like I think I have some view that maybe since then we've been in some kind of gradual but clear descent culturally and that, that was <laughs> and he said wow that's a really cool question and I, he, so anyway months maybe even a year or two later I see him he goes I finally asked Bob the question and I'm like my god what did he say yeah and he said he looked at me and kind of laughed and he said, you know, in 1963, I was at a party in Greenwich Village um, and Jean-Paul Sartre was there. And Dylan walks up to Sartre and asks him the same question about expatriate Paris. <laughs> and it's like, you were there and, you know, it's like the Woody Allen movie. It is the Woody Allen, yeah. And, you know, was, you know, was that really the moment in time when it was, you know, you and the existentialists and Picasso, all these people, was that really, you know, the big moment in history? And Jean-Paul Sartre told him that existentialism and all of this other stuff was just really a rap they made up to get girls. <laughs> and I developed this theory that maybe all of history, is. you know, is, was really about awkward guys <laughs> trying to come, become very good at something. Yeah. To, you know, which certainly seems to 
you know, I guess the sad part is now when that happens, we wind up with Facebook. Yeah. Because <laughs> that seems to be what that movie was about. It is. That's interesting. I think there is a documentary in tracing back the history of, of young men trying to impress yeah. the ladies. <laughs> it may be that most of the good stuff men have done and a great deal of the bad stuff was purely because they didn't know how to ask somebody how to dance, <laughs> um, which would have solved the problem. Yeah. So. Uncovering history, left yeah. and right. I mean, it's interesting what you're talking about there because I think that's also one of the appealing things about the lab is the idea of tying in, I mean, certainly for the fellows with other filmmakers who are sort of doing different and unusual things and seeing you guys all together with this incredible round circle last night, so many diverse filmmakers who, you know, if you're on a jury, you're sort of stuck in there watching movies all the time. Right. And to just have like a week to talk about craft and, and share ideas seems like a very unique kind of construct. Yeah, it's, you know, it's kind of, I wouldn't want to do it all the time because I think my head would explode. <laughs> but the thing that's really lovely about the lab and about this process is that as a writer, you spend a lot of time alone and you write and we don't work together. I mean, actors, you know, are usually in, in, in little groups mm -hmm. called casts. Yeah. And, and so they do work with each other. And at that point in the process, it's a very shared experience. Mm -hmm. But when you're the writer, you're alone in, you know, in, in the morning, in the night, you know, working on this thing, trying to kick its ass. And no one can really help you in, in the midst of it, mm -hmm. you know? It's sort of you versus the blank page. And so when we have these opportunities to get together and sort of share what we've learned from these voyages into the darkness <laughs> about, you know, how you deal with coming up with a new idea or, or how you deal with rejection or you know, structure, what, any of these things. Um, it's really great to get together. I mean, for me it's great because, I, like I said, I never went to film school. Mm -hmm. So I would hear people talk about problems and they had solutions <laughs> because yeah. they'd had this whole history that they'd learned of how people had dealt with those problems. Um, you know, I, I didn't have that. And, the oral tradition of screenwriting really exists here and here alone. You know, um, last year I was here, or two years ago, I think, and now I'm going to forget the guy's name. Um, Walter, is it Walter Bernstein? Yeah. Who, who wrote? The, the Magnificent Seven, and the, no, he was blacklisted for a yeah. while. Yeah. So there was a movie. We were all invited to, to bring, you know, scenes from movies. So I brought a scene from Contagion that I had screwed up because I misunderstood the assignment. I thought we were supposed to bring things that we wish we could have done differently. Oh, um, but my last name is Burns and his last name is Bernstein um, because my parents were cowards. At, grandparents were cowards at Ellis Island. Otherwise, I would have been Bernstein also. Um, <laughs> But he brings this amazing movie called The Front, which I had seen when I was very, very young that my parents took me to about The Blacklist. Um, and it's a great movie. It's, I think the, one of the only movies where Woody Allen is the lead and it's not a Woody Allen movie. Yeah. Um, and he plays it and he, it's, a, it's a mainly serious role and Zero Mostel is in it. It's a really cool movie about this piece of American history that I didn't know. 
and almost everybody who worked on the movie had been blacklisted. Um, so this guy gets up and he's in his 80s now and shows the scene from the movie and I'm weeping and then I get up and show my shitty scene from Contagion that I, that I made a mistake with. And it was so great to see that far into the future. Like this guy still does what I do. He gets up in the morning and he you know, walks his dog and he sits down and he tries to tell stories. And you don't meet people like that in Hollywood. We don't all get together. Writers tend to shy away from each other. And this is sort of this four-day peace treaty where we all sort of, you know, open the kimono and, and like, really will, because we're here to help other people. And that sort of is the time in your life where you put your own narcissism aside for a few days. <laughs> it's a really great thing to be able to look ahead of you at any point in your career. And I think regardless of what you're doing, um, and and seeing, you know, oh, there's that point on the horizon. Right. You know, if I'm 25, here's what this job is like when you're 35 or if you're 40, you know, to be able to see that there is a way forward. And Hollywood is really cruel and very ageist. Uh -huh. And so it's really important that we keep these people who have this wisdom around and keep them in, in contact with us because otherwise, we will have no oral tradition will have and writing you know at the end of the day ends up you know being about solving problems i've worked on the same scripts here the same projects as walter mm -hmm. and i'm like this guy's you know twice my age and has you know better insights into it and it's not about what's cool or what's hip it's you know the things about storytelling tend to be really really universal yeah one of the things I love about the lab is this idea of ancestry. And um, for example, Patty Jenkins came in January and she showed us Monster. And it was interesting because she was talking about how Midnight Cowboy had influenced Monster. And I thought that was just so interesting. And I'm wondering, um, with The Informant and with Contagion, what were some of the movies that you were thinking about when you wrote them? It's funny because Patty was writing Monster at the same time I was writing Pew 239. Oh, wow. And we used to go to like the same um, little place in Venice and write together. <laughs> and wonder if either of us were ever going to get our movies made. Um, she beat me by a few years and a few million dollars. Um, but oddly enough, I actually remember talking to Patty about Midnight Cowboy because Midnight Cowboy also had a huge influence on Pew 239 and putting two guys together who might not in and of themselves be likable, but we grow to like them because of what they're sort of facing. Yeah, together. Um, you know, I, I saw, and it's, I think it's probably why Soderbergh and I have worked together so much. There were a bunch of movies I saw when I was pretty young that just stuck with me um, that all came out sort of in the early 70s. And, you know, Dog Day Afternoon mm -hmm. and and One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and Midnight Cowboy. Um, I didn't discover The Graduate until I got older, mm -hmm. you know, but still it's, you know, one of the great sort of, you know, moments of my life was um, an old girlfriend of mine on, I think, Valentine's Day, we watched The Graduate. <laughs> and I was trying so hard to tell her something about, you know, how I, I would never give up, um, you know, and, 
and that movies like that had had such a huge effect on me and the desire to make pieces of communication and things like that so you know those then there were some weirder darker things clockwork orange completely blew my mind um and that had a huge effect on me in terms of you know what you could say politically in a movie um network mm -hmm. i think was a movie that i have a lot of connection with um apocalypse now to me was great because i I'm fascinated in adaptation and that that was, you know, Conrad's book, Heart of Darkness, was such a, a mind-blowing thing that, that you could open up adaptation to that wide a thing. And I always sort of, when I talk to people about adapting work, because I've, I've had the opportunity to do it a few times, it's like, do it like that, or even what Charlie Kaufman did with adaptation. I think is one of the most beautiful movies I've seen in a long time um, because it talks about the creative process so much. Um, so a bunch of movies like that, Princess Bride, um, <laughs> you know, the great. things like that. Um, what about you? Um, yeah, I mean, Dog Day Afternoon is a movie that like my dad had talked about growing up and then I hadn't seen it and in co I got to college without seeing it. One day I like put it in the DVD player, like had some afternoon off. And it was just one of those like earthquake type experiences because I, it's, I find it such a generous film. Every character gets their storyline. Every character is, is well developed. And the whole thing of like when he's robbing the money for the sex change, I was like, to me, that was like one of the great yeah. curves of all time. Is like, know, there's a moment in that movie where they're calling in the helicopter, yeah. and, and Al Pacino says to John Cassell, like, where do you want to go? Any country, you name it. Yeah. And I think he says Wyoming. And I remember as a kid crying so hard that he, this guy was so out of his depth that he didn't even know what a country was. And I still look at that as, you know, like, it's every bit as painful and aching as, you know, the stuff with Lenny and with Mice and Men. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you one more question. Okay. Um, all right, so when you ask people what they listen to, were there musical things that, that your IRA people you interviewed, what was like the most interesting thing that an IRA person told you about their personal life? One thing that was interesting was, <clears throat> so there was a band in the 70s called the Bay City Rollers. And the Bay City Rollers were out of Scotland. And the Bay City Rollers were like considered Protestant. And they were, um, so they were these pants that were like huge bell bottoms but cut short. They're just like the, I guess, high waters, the maddest thing I've ever seen. But it was like a great dark secret to be a Bay City Rollers fan because basically you were betraying yeah. your, your cultural heritage. But I have to tell you, like half of the people I interviewed were like smuggling Bay City Rollers records because, and it's it's sad that it wasn't like, you know, Bob Dylan and stuff. It was like disco. But you know disco. what? I'm willing to bet that they were all kind of smuggling them for girls. Yeah, and yeah, once probably. Again, it all goes back to <laughs> the ladies. What crime you're willing to commit? Yeah. Which is weird because I just went through this with, you know, the same ex-girlfriend where I, I said I was going to write her a song. And this friend of mine said, I just want to point out to you, she probably didn't break up with you because you didn't write a song. <laughs> so it may not work. 
That's yeah. a good line for a film. <laughs> All right. Goes in the Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Nick Dawson from Talkhouse Film, and you've been listening to Scott Z. Burns and Orla George in conversation on the Talkhouse Film podcast. For more filmmakers talking about film and TV, go to film.thetalkhouse.com. Subscribe to Talkhouse Film and Talkhouse Music Podcasts on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. Till next time, goodbye. <laughs>